Father, thank you for our liberty in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the freedom that he purchased with his own blood. The fact that we can celebrate, not just on earth today, the amazing 245 years that our country has survived in spite of Satan, in spite of opposition and false teaching, and on and on it goes. But it's still here and it's standing firm because of your own. You're not blessing America for its sin. You're blessing America for its righteousness. And if that starts fading, then we have to look in the mirror at ourselves. So help us to grow. Help us to be available to you to serve. Help us to make a difference because we are salt and light. And may we make um, the major change in this country instead of waiting for the unbelievers to do it. May we be the ones who are on our knees in prayer before you, crying out, for our neighbors and friends and family to come to know you and then to share that message with them and make it very clear and live it out to show what Christ can do in our lives. Bless this time as we look at Ephesians 1. And again, use it for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this handout, I'm not going through all four pages. Some of them, um, some of them you will recognize. I've made a minor changes here and there, but the front one is new. And so I want to read this paragraph at the top, especially, and then a reminder with the the lower part. It says, many of those who call themselves Calvinists today do not really understand its core beliefs. So we're taking a couple weeks just to get this out. I'm I'm getting more and more information to realize that people think they're Calvinists, and when they really look at the whole picture, they realize, I'm not one of those. And so there's a lot of confusion. So I put on here, the following quotation explains Calvinism's five points in Tulip. Now, the gentleman who wrote this, Philip Congdon, went to Multnomah the same time I did. And um, so I was interested when I came across this, but he said it better than I could, so I just quote it here. He says, according to the classical Calvinist system, there's at least three major camps of Calvinism. So if you get confused, don't be surprised. But the classical Calvinist system, man is T, totally depraved, by which they mean that he cannot even respond to the gospel message. These individuals are dead, as Ephesians 2 brings up, and must be regenerated before they can even have faith. So God has to save them before they can get saved is kind of the simple way of putting that. Doesn't make sense scripturally. It doesn't make sense practically. But it is what's taught. Not by all of them. So again, don't, don't put them all in a box, but this is typically what comes out. He says, this leads to unconditional, there's the you, of TULIP, unconditional election, meaning that God sovereignly, and by that I mean arbitrarily, chose those who would be saved. And thus there is a third L, limited atonement. Atonement is limited to those he chooses. This in turn implies I, irresistible grace, since no one whom God elects will be lost. No one who is elected can reject Christ, just as no one who is not elected can receive him. And finally, the letter P, it leads to perseverance of the saints, meaning to classical Calvinists, not simply that the believer is eternally secure, but that the true believer will never fall away. A life of faithful obedience, therefore, is an inevitable result of salvation and must be there. Now, you have different flavors of all of this, but he closes with this last part. Most Christians have heard of tulip. I submit that a tulip is a beautiful flower, but it is bad theology. The the fruit of the flower is appealing. The fruit of the theology is appalling. Now, if you know someone who's a Calvinist, and we've had them in the church, we've had some here that have actually come for a while, found out from something I made as a comment about Calvinism that I wasn't Calvinist. Some of you may be. But I wasn't, and that was it. They were gone. Only be bumped into into a store a few um, days, weeks later, to find out that they left over that comment. That's not what I'm encouraging you to do. I'm encouraging you to think as to what Scripture teaches. If you're a Calvinist, then you need to go to Scripture and verify that that's true. So I'm going to take a few minutes. I'm going to teach Ephesians 1, but I want to bring out some characteristics in there that help you understand, as we did last week, that the teaching, the classical teaching of Calvinism is not true. So on the bottom half of this handout, P1, 
page number one there, you see those, the tulip laid out, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And I, I put a lot in here and a lot in the pages that follow. But the question comes out in each one, total depravity, can all men seek God? And the Bible says yes. And so I gave you the scriptures there. You don't have to write them down this week. All right? But you need to look them up. Last week, the scriptures I gave you were not critical. And some of you looked them up and kind of got lost into what I even meant by the verses that were there. All the Old Testament presented is that God expected a new heart in the Jews in the Old Testament. That's all he was looking for. There's no difference when he tells them to be born again in the New Testament. He's teaching the same principle. Faith caused Abraham to be born again in the sense of regenerated, made a child of God, forever secure. And so we wanted to point those out. Can all men see God? Yes. Can all men be saved in spite of the unconditional election? The Bible says yes. Did Christ, number three, die for all men? The Bible says yes, and you can look those up. I underline key ones. If for some reason you're in a hurry, just pick up the ones that are underlined. There is no limited atonement. Christ died for the sins of all. When you get down to number four, is grace irresistible? If God picks you, are you stuck? Maybe I shouldn't put it in a negative way. Are you in whether you like it or not? And the answer to that is, can all men freely choose salvation? No S on salvation. But the answer to that is yes. And there's plenty of scriptures that present that. Finally, the perseverance of the saints claims that believers must continue in the faith to prove that they are saved. Their focus is on my perseverance, not God's promise. I don't have, pers- I don't have eternal life because of my works. I have eternal life because of his promise to me and what Christ provided. So there again, are all believers eternally saved? The Bible's answer is yes. So I thought I was a Calvinist. I would, I'm willing to stay after for a couple hours if necessary. After, um, maybe I'll take a nap first and then stay after. But the, the information here to me is crystal clear. I'm not trying to put down Calvinists, Calvinists, and I'm not trying to push them away. I was a Calvinist, I thought, until I understood what, exactly what it taught. And I would go, well, I don't believe any of that. I thought I was a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist for a while until I went into it further and realized, nope. All of the positions that they're promoting do not line up with Scripture, which is where we're going now with Ephesians 1. Paul is praising God. This is the idea of blessed be um, for our position in Christ. Ephesians is six chapters. It's split in half. When you look at the first half, he's talking about our position in Christ, what God has done for us. And it starts off, he starts off this message here with praising God because of that position. He's done it all. And so I'll get someone who's a Calvinist and say, well, that's exactly what we believe. God did it all. He even made it happen to you. Well, that's nice, but that's not biblical. And, and so, no, um, believe me, I have many more verses than I could fit on that little paper to teach those principles. Scripture is clear on what it teaches. And then I want to point out here that in those blessings, in our position in Christ, we go down through here, we have been chosen, predestined, we have adoption, redemption, forgiveness, inheritance, we have been sealed. Those are all things that are brought up in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. What's interesting about this section is it's one sentence. It's one sentence in the Greek. How did Paul do that? Paul's, and it's probably the longest sentence you'll find anywhere, but Paul lays this all out because he's making it into a package deal. He's building it all together. The problem is we come in, the Calvinist comes in with one dictionary, and the Bible-believing individual who is not a Calvinist and not an Arminian either. See, they, they want to only have two categories. I gave you a third paper in there that gives you the um, contrast between the two and simply what the Bible teaches. That's all I want to teach is Scripture. So bear with me. Next week, we start into 1 Corinthians 12, and we have a summer of love as we go through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. And the whole focus there is on love. But in the meantime, this needs to be addressed. Calvinism misunderstands God's blessings. And in essence, from my perspective, it enslaves God's children. You end up on the wrong 
in wrong places when you take that position as far as how you respond. And again, I know there's people listening to me right now that don't agree. So let me try to explain to you from the passage why I believe this. I picked on three areas. The first one that stands out in verses three to six is adoption. He says here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So he lays out this initial thing here, this this aspect of the gift that has been given to us, the spiritual blessing in Christ. To be uh, blessed be is to speak well of, is to praise God. And he has a reason for that. Because he has blessed us. He has benefited us with his words. And in essence, I zero in on his promises of what he's given to us. The covenant to Israel is fixed. That covenant will be fulfilled. Much of what's in it, people think, well, Israel's done today. They've been replaced by the church, which isn't taught in Scripture. It isn't true. Otherwise, God ends up being a liar, which is impossible. Those are still going to be fulfilled. You see all that when you go into biblical eschatology and you recognize that Christ is going to return. Where's his feet going to touch? Okay, I can name a bunch of mountains, right? But it's one mountain in particular. It's only one mountain. And where is it located? In Jerusalem. And where is he going to go once he touches on that mount and he deals out retribution? And you could study Zechariah and a number of places where that is. Where does he go from there? He goes down into Jerusalem, where the city of David is. He enters into the temple. Why, why there? Why couldn't it be New York City? Why not Paris? We could pick some places that are a lot prettier. Okay, leave New York off, but we could find some. San Francisco, San Francisco used to be really pretty, too. But, but the issue isn't the beauty of it. It's what it represents, and he's coming back to Israel. He's going to reign over the earth from Israel. Well, I thought Israel wasn't going to be there. I thought Israel doesn't matter. And you go scripture after scripture, and you recognize here that he has blessed Israel. He has blessed the church, and he has, um, they're distinct. Even when you get to the New Jerusalem, they're distinct in the foundation. But he's trying to bring out here, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, pardon, peace, redemption, fellowship, all of these promises are brought to bear on us. In the heavenly places, it's the uh, spiritual realm right now because... He's not here yet. And you and I don't have new bodies yet. So when he goes into this picture, he's describing what is there, what is a given, what is fixed. But it's in Christ who is our source of life, our head, our Messiah, which is what Christ means. So as you get this initial part, he's just pronouncing a blessing. Interesting way for him to start off a letter. Not typical as you start checking out some of the ways he writes. But he says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There it is. Now we've got it. We're locked in, right? And so I gave you a handout. And again, I don't have time to go through them to explain that the idea of choosing has nothing to do with salvation. Who's been chosen? Angels, 1 Timothy 5.22. And you'll have to look on there to get those references. Jesus Christ was chosen. He's the chosen one. That had nothing to do with salvation. Judas was chosen, one of the 12. Lost forever. Angels are chosen. I already had that one. Left one out. There's a bunch of them in there. But as you start going in, the nation of Israel, chosen. The chosen people. The majority of them will end up in hell. To choose is not to save. And if you get that dictionary definition in your head and you read scripture that way, that he did something for the elect, you automatically think it means that they're the saved ones. They're not. Israel's called the elect because he chose them to serve him. Judas to serve him. Jesus to serve him. And the angels to serve him. It's not about salvation. And I can't take too much time because I don't have time today. But once you look at scripture, go look it up. Go look up all the places where it was found. This is when I started my journey to realize I'm not, I guess I'm not a, um, what do they call those people? Calvinists. And I went, wait, there's something wrong with this. There's got to be more to it than that. And so as you went through here, then you look back at this, you say, okay, if that's not the definition, then what is he getting at? And so it's a middle voice, which again, I'm sorry for bringing up stuff, but literally you can translate this just as, or in as much as he selected us for himself. 
Why? And who's he talking to? Who's the us? Is it the world in general? Nope. Who's the us? He's writing to the believers in Ephesus. So you could say maybe it's the church in more general, but it's specifically believers that he has selected for himself to do what? That they're in him before the foundation of the world. So here's another hang-up, and again, I, I need four hours, but I don't have it. When you consider the idea of foreknowledge, people get, they, they, again, they go bonkers on it. All foreknowledge is, in God's case, is the fact that he is omniscient. He knows all things before they ever occur. And so God, before time, before man, before everything was placed on planet Earth, he knew, and at that point in time, he selected or chose us in him that we should be not saved. That's not what he's describing here, that we should be holy and blameless. Those are the two things that he's locking on to. So one individual, and I have a lot of other handouts I could give you, he described it like this. There's like a circle. And what God is doing is he's inviting, and you can find many verses for that. I have a page of verses just for that. Whosoever will may come. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes. And so here's this circle, and what he says to you is, if you get in the circle, I now choose you to be holy and blameless. I'm not choosing unbelievers to be holy and blameless. They're dead, according to what's taught here. They're outside. They're not in that category. But what people struggle with is the idea that we have a free will to make that decision to choose Christ. And that has to be. It's all through Scripture. How do you suppress the truth and unrighteousness if you are dead and you cannot reason? How do you come and let us reason together, says the Lord in Isaiah 1? If you're unable to think, it's not a problem here. And I'm being probably a little intense, so I need to take a breath. <laughs> Two of our individuals just had to leave to, as a sheriff and the um, paramedic. So there's a call. So you can be in prayer for whatever that might be. But as you're looking to this picture, he's choosing these believers to be holy and blameless. How are you doing today, by the way? How's your holiness and your blamelessness? You guys are living perfect, right? If I were to take a survey right now, and I'd only give it to your wife, because I don't like picking on women, I get in big trouble. But, but I ask your wife, how's, how's his holiness? How's, how's his blamelessness? Would you appreciate me giving out that survey? Okay, I got one honest answer. It is what it is, but it isn't perfect. It isn't holy and blameless. And so as you're watching them grow, and they are growing, they're being stretched, this is the goal of what he's after. This is what he's working toward, that we, they be holy. And the, the picture he's trying to bring out with this is to be dedicated to God. When you think of the idea of holy, it's to be separated from common use. Did your mom ever have something that she considered holy in the house? The living room, maybe? Um, her china in the cabinet? You weren't allowed to take that out and play with it, even though you would have really enjoyed it. She has dedicated, she has separated those things into a unique use. They're not common. They aren't everyday dishes. That'd be the word we would use the idea of common. They are holy dishes. We get this idea that this word is only used in spiritual realms in church. But it was a common understanding on their part. He wants us to be separated from common use. In our position, we're set apart to serve him uniquely. Not distracted, no squirrels, as, as Jim talks about. Um, and I'm already forgetting all these phrases. ADOS. ADOS. Attention deficit. Oh, squirrel. That's a favorite of Jim's. And we do that a lot. He doesn't want us doing that in our Christian walk. He wants us locked in. If you are a china dish that is precious, been passed down from great-grandma to grandma to, to mom, and now you've got responsibility, you don't use them for Frisbees or for trap shooting. Or do you? But as he's processing here, he's trying to tell them, God said, I set this up before the world began. I could look forward, as he does now, and see everything, and I made a decision of what I would do. If you came to Christ, if you chose to believe, then here's what I'm going to produce in you. You're still praying, right? 
The, the second idea here that we should be blameless is more of a negative side. Free from blame, free from fault. This is more the practice of our lifestyles. Unblameable in character and conduct. This is what he's after. So you find this all over in the New Testament where Paul talks about bringing believers to maturity, to completeness in Christ, to growing up and no longer being babies that are living on milk, but of being mature and where you can chew meat. This is all he's getting at here. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with those who are already saved. Is what he was going to do for them. That they should be holy and blameless before him. And then he goes to the next level here in verse 4. And he brings out the goal. In love he predestined us. Oh, there's another one. As soon as I see that word, I just lock on. Done deal, right? What does predestined mean? predetermined, the idea here that he decides ahead of time. Some will put in there foreordained. This is actually a participle. It is supporting the idea of him choosing us, the indicative. And he is predestined us, determined or designing ahead of time what we would be. And specifically, designing us to adoption. Now, now we get into another area. As soon as they hear the word, everybody gets, goes in a different realm. When you look at this adoption, this isn't American adoption. What's American adoption? You find some child that doesn't have parents. They may be in a home. They may be somebody you know. And somebody needs to train them up or to, to take them in, legally adopt them, make them their own. That's not what this is talking about. Roman, Jewish, and even Greek adoption was practiced by parents on their own children. What do they call it? What do the Jews call it today? Bar mitzvah? Bat mitzvah's daughter? And so as you look at that, what they do is they reach a certain age, and like the Romans, the Romans could reject you altogether. If you weren't the right son, if I pick, I'll pick on the men today, but if you weren't the right son, and you got to the appropriate age, and let's say it's around 12, 13, it was, it was the idea of becoming an adult, and your dad said, I can't trust you, I, I don't, you don't love me, you don't obey me, you're not following me, I will not adopt you. What did they miss out on? Inheritance, authority to take over in dad's place. You see this in Galatians 4, and again, this is part of the four-hour message where you can look at some of this, and I've tried to give you some of those passages, but it's, you can look up in concordance and you can see where these things were used. But adoption, or Galatians 4, 5, it's literally the placing of a son. I take my son, he's reached appropriate age, and now we have what they do with bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. Or what we could do in the Roman world is, all of a sudden I declare, and that's what Galatians 4, 5 to 7 is talking about. I make you not my child, you're already my child. Technon. I make you a weos. I place you into sonship. And so the, the understanding here has, again, nothing to do with salvation. And for the believers, it's God, when we reach the age, when we are ready to take that role, when is that? You go to Romans 8, 23, you have that memorized? Romans 8, 23? I encourage you to look at it. You're all looking at me. What's that? Oh, okay, you know 8, 28, but this is a few verses before. He mentions it in an earlier verse, which I didn't look for. Um, but let's just look at 23. He says, not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. And what are we doing? These are believers, writing to the Romans, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Do you, are you adopted yet? Nope. How do you know that? Because he goes on right there. Your adoption of sons is the redemption of our body. When do you get that? At the return of Jesus Christ. And you're caught up in the air, and 1 Corinthians 15 says you're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. You take on immorality, um, immortality. <laughs> you leave behind the immorality. You are totally changed, and you are in the presence of God himself, and you're able to be there. That's the final step. You go from justification when you're declared righteous in your standing to sanctification, which you are growing to be like Christ in your lifestyle, to glorification, where you are ultimately made 
physically change. Spirit, soul, body is what's happening in us. Once that last stage happens, now you can take on the position of sonship. Now you're ready to take on all the authority, the inheritance. You will reign with Christ forever and ever. It has nothing to do with our salvation. It's for those who are already saved, and he's using an illustration not in the physical realm like the Romans and the Jews and the Greeks, but he's using it in the spiritual realm of what God's going to do for us. That's not typically what's taught today, and yet there it is right there in Romans 8.23. Adoption is the redemption of your body. And those words, justification, sanctification, glorification, are found in your Bibles. I don't know when I say them, if a verse just pops up, oh, I know where that's found, but you can go look them up. It's part of the process of us moving from one step to another step to ultimately to this role that we have. So he's taking us and giving us this adoption, but it's future. It's, he's predestined it to take place through Jesus Christ to himself as we become sons of God, we us, according to the kind intention of his will. His good pleasure is to put us in that position. Verse 6 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, his divine favor divine benefits, which he freely bestowed on us. He visited us, gifted us with a favor in the beloved. It's Jesus Christ that's the answer here. The tendency is when you, if you're looking at Calvinism, is you get all locked up in the system and whether or not you're in it or not. And then people, a lot of people in it have a lot of questions because if they really are saved and they can't get out of it, which one of the tulip is that? could look at perseverance of the saints. And the last one, you could look at the irresistible grace, claims that none of the elect can ever reject Christ, can ever turn away from him, which is fine. I, if you're, but again, none of the elect is none of the chosen ones. It's not talking about none of the saved. I know this is heavy, and I, and I hesitated to go into this for a couple of weeks, but it is critical. It is showing up in churches today, and it's splitting them. People get hung up on the system of theology rather than on the person of Christ. So I picked a passage that brings up a number of these things to try to bring out the fact that we have been given salvation because we heard the message and we believed, and you're going to see that show up here. What I really want to do is ask questions and take four hours or ask four questions. But he's simply trying to lay out here that the um, adoption is free to be stowed on us in the beloved um, and we become sons and take on this role as those who will reign with Christ. It, it is absolutely amazing when you stop and think about what's involved. Why do we get to reign with Christ? Why do we get to have the inheritance with Christ? And it's all because of what he's pointing out here, because we are in Christ. And Christ is in us. There is a connection between the two. When you become a child of God, you are changed. You become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, if this isn't exciting to you, I got an idea for you. What's my favorite line? Read your Bibles. Don't get watered down. Don't get just mixed up in the world and you kind of say, well, I'm just trying to get along. I'm just trying to make it. It's really tough out there. What did Jesus Christ think of that? What do you think about the disciples when they fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane? He rebuked them. Do you want him to show up right now and preach in place of me? What would he say to us? Because he would know every single thing about us. You think I'm bad. He'd clean house. There'd be a lot of things he'd be saying, get rid of that. It's come between me and you. My Heart Christ Home, we shared last week, some took some copies of that, helps you to, to think that in a, in a practical lesson form where the individual is, becomes a believer, Christ moves into his house, and he takes up residence, and Christ tells him, Jesus Christ tells him, I'm going to meet you every morning down by the fireplace in, in the den or whatever they call it in the booklet there. And he, oh, he's excited, and he goes down there, and he sits with him and interacts with him, and pretty soon life gets busy, and he misses a morning, and then he, he, but he's back in there, he just misses every day, and then pretty soon, well, once a week is good enough, and then he goes for a long time, and finally stops going down the stairs and sees the door ajar, and who's sitting in there? Jesus Christ, in the story. 
and trying to, and it's convicting because he realizes that he has been neglecting the very one who saved his soul. And Jesus isn't happy just to meet with him. That's, that's the bottom line. That's the basic. He wants the key to the closet upstairs that this individual won't let him see. Jesus already came in, changed the pictures on the walls, and he did a lot of alterations, but he wants the key. Why is the door locked upstairs? How come you won't let me in and see what's in there? What are we hiding? And this is a lot of what's coming in here. He's chosen us to be holy and blameless. And if you really know him, he will not give up. You're going to become the most miserable person on earth. Trying to mix your salvation in Christ with a lifestyle with the world. It just doesn't work. And he disciplines. He spanks us. The Corinthians, some were weak, some were sick, and a number were taken home. I questioned that during COVID. Then I realized a lot of people have this. I don't think it's just something I've done wrong. But I always ask him, what's going on? Where am I at? Why are you limiting my abilities? Why are you trying to grab onto my little face and pull it up there and get my attention? The problem with COVID, just to mention it, and I'm sorry I'm a preacher, I have to meddle, is there will always be a COVID. If you're living in fear because of the next variant or because of the next whatever coming along, you will never do what God wants you to do. You're following the world. You can go to scripture, again, read your Bibles, and you can realize what God's asking for. It's a commitment, even to death. We talked early on in the midst of all of that about running back to help people even though you might get the disease. I got the disease. Here I am. I didn't die. I didn't get any special treatments. God took care of me. If he takes you home, guess what he's saying? It's time to come home. We sing songs, we sang a bunch this morning, and I was thinking about that in this relation to my position in Christ. And we're singing how strong and mighty God is and how I don't have to worry and battle, he'll take care of me unless it's COVID-19 or unless it's I lost my job or they had to remove my eye or they took off my leg and now I can't do whatever. You, all of a sudden we start going, oh, oh, no, 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 it's Jesus plus me. I have to be involved. I have to be able to do these things. Until I heard a story this week. A couple of stories this week that I listened to brought tears to my eyes and a lump in my stomach as I heard one guy who had lost his legs and his mom said, you're not sitting around. And he becomes a, wins four gold medals in the Paralympics and becomes an equestrian star of the world. Did anybody hear this this week? You don't listen to the same radio stuff. And he sang at President Reagan's funeral. He sang at a living president's birthday party. It was like, wait a minute, this guy's supposed to shrivel up and die. He's supposed to say, my life isn't worth living anymore. Well, all it is is how your body is that makes life worth living. You've got a problem. You need to readjust. It's Christ who makes life worth living. And it's Christ who's freely given to all men, which is what we're trying to stress even when we go through here. Look at the next section. He gets to the acquittal, starting in verse 7. He says, in him, and you keep noticing this, in him, in him, through him, all the different, in Christ, all the different statements, but it's in him that we have the redemption, definite article in the Greek, through his blood. That's pretty straightforward. This redemption is this deliverance that's been secured It literally carries the idea of you've been released on payment of a ransom. And I always used to bring up the S&H stamps, but I get more and more blank looks. They kind of go, what? And then you use the other stamp. What was the other one? Green stamps? Blue chips. Okay. And there's probably some more out there that were Eastern, Western, whatever they were. But, but you go back, and it's the same idea. You could redeem them. You collected them. We love to lick them and make, them, make the page fill up and start, oh, we've got 20 pages. What's that good for? Something you don't need. Because <laughs> you need about 500 to get what you really, you know, that something that was going to be good. But the toaster lasts a week or whatever it was you redeemed it for. But that doesn't work with Jesus Christ. His redemption is perfect. He did it through his blood, not through stamps. Permanent. And who did he die for? The sins of the whole world. As you go through that list, you're looking at the verses. 
In 1 John 2, 2, Christ is the, not only the propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. It doesn't say the whole world of believers, which is what some of your study Bibles say. It's for the whole world. He died for all men. Verse after verse after verse. I have to translate these words. I have to change the dictionary definitions of chosen, predestined, foreknowledge, adoption, and some other terms that come along with that in order to come up with what the Calvinists want you to believe. The, the truth, the simple truth is sitting in the word of God. It's sitting on the page. A, a baby believer can read it and totally understand it. And that's part of the problem with this. We have elevated this, almost like what the Catholic, did, Catholic Church did in ages past, where they, only, they put it in Latin, only their priests could, could do the Mass. You were just simply a kind of a spectator. You just carried out a few simple, simple things. You know, when they said to know, you said what they said to say. You, you let them put the wafer on your tongue. You, you did a bunch of things, but you were just kind of an outsider. And that's too often what Calvinism is trying to do with individuals. You're responsible if you go to hell, it will not be because God didn't pick you. And it will not be because someone didn't share the gospel with you. That's another one that's going around today. Who's the Holy Spirit convict? Everyone coming into the world in John 16. Convicts them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It is, it is broad. And if the Holy Spirit convicts you in general revelation, Psalm 19, and, and um, Romans 1 brings out the facts of what God does just through the general revelation to get people's attention. They've had missionaries show up in tribes who had, were set up. They knew there was a God. They knew there was something beyond the witch doctors and all the rest of it. If you get the little booklet from Samaritan's Purse, you see a neat little story in there about a boy. I don't know if I can tell it. But his, his dad took what he had and helped with how he could. And ultimately, they found out it was a heart defect. The witch doctors in the village thought, you know, he was cursed. He must have a demon. And they went all, he went off to a, they took him to a hospital on a different island, brought him back, and all of a sudden, the boy's all better. Well, that's all it took for that tribe. But they've had other tribes, for a number of them. There's a church there today. But they've had no, other tribes where the whole tribe turned to Christ because the missionary came and shared the gospel with them that Christ died on the cross for their sins and rose again from the dead, and they, went, they wanted to believe it. And this one missionary went, no, no, no. You, you can't be ready. You, I haven't hardly shared anything with you. I just gave you the basic information. So let's take some time and work through this. And he did. He wouldn't let them receive Christ right away. He thought they were confused. You know, kind of like four-year-olds all raising their hands when you ask them who wants to receive Jesus. And so he took some time, took some time, and they're kind of going, okay, we're ready, we're ready, we're ready. And he goes, how did you know? And they pointed to things in their own limited way to general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Firmament declares the handiwork. And even the things he has made in Romans 1 bring out his eternal Godhead. How does he even do that? That's general revelation. Special revelation is Jesus Christ himself coming to the cross, dying, resurrecting from the dead with only 500 witnesses. How'd that get spread around so far? And yet, how did he get rejected by so many? Why does it, it bring um, division when it's shared? If it doesn't matter, if it never happened in history, why are so many people upset when they hear about it? Why are the Muslims in a number of countries right now trying to wipe out Christians? And I'm not even sure they're all Christians. That's the term they give them. But they hate it. They hate Jesus Christ. They hate all of his hands for because his deliverance comes through his blood. How can I brag about that? What do I get to say? I, got, I sprinkle a little bit of my blood in there too. My blood's worthless. But he says in here, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass. I love this word. I never have enough time, but I love this word. It means pardon or remission of our trespasses, our false steps, our offenses, our stumbling aside off the path that God has set up. But that word forgiveness, a fee of me, carries the idea, and this I'm stretching a little bit to make, make sense out of it, but it, the idea of pardoning someone is to forgive them their debt, right? So you let go. You set them free. I forgive you means the next time they ask you about it, you go, maybe you don't, maybe you remember because it, it was so bad, but you have no idea that it, it doesn't matter to you anymore. You don't treat them any different than you treat anybody else you talk to. 
Is that how you've been with your forgiveness of people that have hurt you? I've had people stab me in the back. I've had people blatantly lie about me, make up all kinds of stuff. Being a pastor is really a fun business. Jealousy, anger, sometimes because you're teaching something that they don't agree with and they go after you to take you out. I had one guy purposely, publicly shook my hand three times, only in front of other people. He was a liar and a hypocrite, and I don't think he was even saved. But he went to a church that I went to. And I shook his hand every time. I didn't need to make a scene. I wasn't holding it against him. I had already told, asked God to forgive him for what he's done. But it caused a lot of misery in my life for the next eight, maybe a total of ten years. I went around with people telling me things that I suppose he had done. And, and you've been there. You understand that. But here it says that the God who knows everything, he hasn't missed anything that we've ever done wrong in all of our trespasses, has provided through the blood of his son forgiveness. It's over. Why do I agonize so much about things that go on in my life? 1 John 1, 9 is kind of the cleaning up process. It's not salvation. John is about salvation. 1 John is about fellowship. Because you're reading your Bibles, you'll see that as you go through there. So 1 John, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Why is he faithful and why is he just? Because we are his children. He has promised to forgive us and he is just in that his son paid our debt. There's nothing there. What he's doing is he's washing our feet, so to speak, not our whole body. He's cleaning up the process in our relationship here. But that redemption comes through Jesus Christ. And it tells you how he did it according to the riches, the wealth. This word can be translated the opulence, the abundance, which he lavished of, of his grace, this divine favor, these benefits that he gifted us, which he lavished upon us as if the riches isn't enough. He lavished it. He made it to abound over and above, abundantly furnished our needs, whatever they were. Is that how you treat your enemies? Is that how you treat the person that stabs you in the back? You show them grace? You give them gifts? God did for us. This is the message in Calvinism. Message in Calvinism is that God chose you before you knew anything. God forced his will upon you, made you be born again, regenerated you, gave you faith, and then you had no choice but to go from there to follow after him. Now, it may sound really good, and it's built on another word that shouldn't be in a Calvinistic dictionary. The word sovereignty. It's like God is a dictator that he, he, whatever he says and does, you have to do. And I can even show you verses that they'll use for that out of context. But if you look up the word sovereignty in the Bible, all you find is it just means he has a kingdom. He is reigning in the hearts of men today. Where is he going to reign ultimately? On earth. And when that thousand-year reign of Christ is on earth, what happens to all the people? We brought it up last week. They hide out. There's no devil, right? The world system isn't coming down on them. There's nothing to love but, but righteousness and peace and truth. And yet inside, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And when they get a chance, at the end of the thousand years, here's a multitude like the sand of the sea that you can't even number in Revelation 20. Seven to ten. And they rebel against Christ. The problem isn't the world. The problem isn't the devil. The problem is us. And it isn't because God has locked us into this position. It's because we don't want it. Romans 1, we suppress the truth. When people share with us, I've talked to many who have come to Christ. They've been witnessed to and witnessed to, and, and I mean by that, given the gospel, given the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, over and over, and finally one day, wham! The convicting work of the Holy Spirit finally sinks in. Is that because God forced it on them? Why do you wait so long? If they were already chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved, not to serve him as believers, then you've got a whole different issue going on here. I know this probably doesn't mean anything until you bump into a Calvinist, and then you're going to be calling me on the phone and going, I've got 10 questions. I don't know how to answer. 
So I encourage you to read through some of this scripturally and ask yourselves, what is the Bible saying? Not what do Calvinists and Arminianists teach about the Bible. I don't follow people, and I don't want you following me. You better figure it out and develop your own convictions from the word of God or they will not stand up. And you better be able to admit, I was wrong. As I did with pre-trib, going over to pre-wrath. I was taught one way, I followed it until I understood the truth correctly because I was able to spend time in Scripture. But he says, in all wisdom and insight, in verse 8, and then verse 9, he made known to us the mystery, the secret that was hidden in the past, the mystery of his will, his purpose, his design, his resolve according to his kind, the kind intention, this good pleasure, again, that got mentioned in verse 5, which he purposed in him. He set up beforehand. He placed it ahead of time in him with a view to the administration, this, this um, stewardship suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. God's focus isn't on forcing salvation on us individually. God's focus was on providing his son universally. That's what he's done. That's what he says all through Scripture. And people say, well, well, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you can't respond. Then how did God meet up with Cain? And he goes in there in Genesis 4, and he says, sin is crouching at the door. You must do nothing because you can't. You, Cain, the unbeliever, who never becomes a believer when you check him out in the New Testament, you, Cain, must master it. Why would you tell a dead person who, who can't help but sin to, to master sin? It makes no sense. And I, as I realized that, I started going through Abimelech and other kings, Pharaoh, and God comes to them and talks to them. They get scared, and they make adjustments and changes about you have somebody else's wife, you either give her back or you're a dead man. The unbeliever responds quickly. It's the Christians or professed Christians today I find are very stubborn. I'm not giving in. I'm not admitting I was wrong. And I surely will not forgive somebody for how they wronged me. And we have a serious problem. Have you read the Lord's Prayer? Really, the disciples' prayer? You notice at the end there, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, what does God say? I won't forgive you. What's he describing there? Is that a work salvation? Or is it simply describing, if you're unwilling to forgive others, guess what you have never had? Forgiveness. Only a believer will turn around and forgive somebody else, genuinely. We have a lot of religions today that are religion-y. They look really good on the surface. But if you've had family involved in some of those, or you've known some friends involved in some of those, you realize they're fake. They put up all these man-made rules and regulations that you have to keep. And I remember one guy in a certain cult, he said, well, I'm going to check it out. And he let his hair grow down over his ears. The rule in, the, in that cult was you always kept your hair trimmed off your ears. Well, he let it go down, and they came to him. I said, you need to cut your hair. Why? Well, because it's over your ear. Well, where, where's that in the Bible? What, what am I trying to follow? What's the... He was just being ordinary, and he really came to Christ ultimately. That's why he was questioning all of it. But they kicked him out because his hair was over his ear. Now, if we started doing that here, Start looking around. Some of you have no hair. You have no worries. I'm getting there really fast. It, it goes from a helicopter landing pad to a, a, a runway for a 777 or Dreamliner. That's all I can do up there now is dream. But he's trying to lay this out, what he's done for us. He's given us acquittal. This is amazing. This is unbelievable what God has provided. And he goes on there to describe it. As he says here in this administration, the things in heaven and things upon the earth, they're all going to be summed up. Literally, the idea here is brought together under one head. Jesus Christ, head of the body, head of the church. This, this is what he's trying to stress as he goes down through here to remind us. I have to keep moving or I'll get in trouble. The last one, you kind of went, where'd that word come from? Ancestry. I needed an A, right? I, I had to make them all agree with each other. Adoption, acquittal, ancestry. But when you look at this, you understand, starting with verse 11, in him, you notice what Paul's trying to bring up here? It's Jesus Christ who is the focus. It's Jesus Christ who's provided our way. 
He didn't go halfway with it. He did it all. He provided everything we needed. When people reject him, they're rejecting salvation or suppressing the truth. And so he says, in him, verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance. We have received a share or obtained a lot. Having been predestined, memory goes back to that word again, looking to the future according to his purpose. This inheritance is not yours yet. When do you get it if you're adopted? At the return of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 5 to 7 describes this relationship you have. The heir, he says here in verse 7, that you finally become the heir, but it is involved with the adoption. And it isn't because God picked you out of a million other people and said, you're going to get saved and the rest of them are going to go to hell. If you believe in Calvinism, you believe that the majority, most people on planet Earth who have ever lived will go to hell. How do I know that? Because Matthew 7 says, few there be that find it. And even in Luke 17, if I, I crisscrossed you last week with the with first Timothy, it was really a second Timothy, you've got to check me out. I make mistakes. But I think it's Luke 17 when he says, when, when he returns, will he find faith on earth? People think there's this great multitude that are going to get saved in the last days. So I made up a handout on that. And I went looking for it. Couldn't find it. All oh, the two witnesses are going to witness and save all these people. Show me. Revelation 11. There's nothing in there about salvation. There's nothing in there about the gospel. They prophesy, and when the Antichrist comes back, he kills them, and the, the whole world has a party. How well were they listening to them? They did not like them at all. That day's coming, and it may not be far away, when those two witnesses will do their thing for three and a half years. The struggle here is in this relationship. This inheritance comes because you have been made a, a son. That's the ancestry. You, you're, gonna, you're being put into the line. You, you're included into the, um, the genealogy, the, the makeup of the family of God. And obtained an inheritance and receiving a share. Having been predestined, and we saw that earlier, marked out beforehand, this is actually a participle, determined ahead of time, with this purpose, this predetermination is what he's after. Because he works all things after the counsel, the decree, the secret thoughts of God's will. Mentioned in verse 9. What's the end? What's the, what's the goal here? That we who were the first to hope in Christ. Who is he writing to? What's the context? He's not talking to all Christians that have ever lived. He's talking to the Ephesians. And he's talking about the first who were hope to hope in Christ here should be to the praise of his glory. This, this idea of hoping in Christ is a perfect tense. They hoped and they continue to hope. The word hope in the Greek is a confident expectation. It's not like American hope. You've got to stop using an English dictionary when you read your Bibles. It's a different culture. It's a different grammar. There's things that are literal and figurative. There, there's a statement made in the book of Revelation that, if, that if, uh, he'll, he may erase your name out of the book of life. And you go, oh, no, I can lose my salvation. I read that many places, many times. You go back culture and you realize that has nothing to do with salvation. When you were born, they wrote your name in, into the registry. When you died, they used to take your name out in America. Now they leave all the dead people in there. Somebody's doing that. But, but the thing with Christ is he says, I will never erase your name. What I'm giving to you isn't just a temporary life on planet Earth in this given city or this county. I'm giving you eternal life, and I will never erase your name from the book of life. It's not about losing your salvation. It's a guarantee that you can't lose your salvation is what he's trying to stress. So as he shows you the design and lays it out, he says in verse 13, in him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth. So what's that tell you right up front? They aren't saved yet. What are they doing? You listened. The word is a kuo. It's not just an idea of mental assent. Well, oh, I take in a little bit of information. Yeah, I heard the preacher. There's a few people sleeping today, and there's different reasons why you sleep in here. Some of you are tired. Some of you are having to take medications from your doctor that make you sleep. Some of you didn't sleep last night because you have back pain or you have other... There's reasons. I don't pick on people here. They wanted to give me a bag of some kind of candies to throw at people when they were sleeping. You know why I won't do that? No, no. I, I can be a pretty good shot. The person I want to hit will never eat the candy. 
By the time they wake up, the people sitting around them have already scarfed up. You see the, the parade yesterday? They were throwing candy to kids, and who was getting it? Adults. I, I needed a slingshot. As soon as they bent over to pick up that candy, whack. Let the kids have the candy. And that's kind of the same thing here. Sorry, there's just a side note. But, but he's trying to bring up, after listening, a kuo, you're taking it in. You're responding with your will. You're making some decisions here. Hearing, hearkening, understanding. It carries the meaning of to heed and obey. To take in and admit to is the word akuo. So it wasn't just a mental ascent or they were asleep and they weren't even, didn't even know what's going on. They heard the message. And what kind of message was it? Truthful, genuine, real, because God cannot lie. After doing that, even though they were dead in their trespasses and sins, which has nothing to do with their ability to take in the, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, he says, after listening to the message, to the gospel of your salvation, good news about that deliverance, having also believed, where did their faith come from? Themselves. They made a commitment. They trusted in Christ. They placed confidence in him. They relied upon him. They did it. It was their faith. It's your decision. It's all through scripture. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Wait, wait, wait. You got to be regenerated first. Born again. And then God will give you the faith. Then you can become a child of God. You understand what's being taught? That is a false gospel. I'm getting near the end. You can throw rocks at me now. Calvinists don't think so. They think it elevates God and his ability to do as he pleases. It's a false gospel. The gospel was available to everyone, whosoever. As soon as I start restricting it down, and they say, well, I'm not restricting. God did, except they can't find that in Scripture. But he says that's not the case. Even in Ephesians 1, having also believed they made the commitment, then you were sealed. And again, bringing out the whole idea here of being marked out as God's own possession. Distinguished with a guarantee of safety. That's the seal that the Holy Spirit put on them. You're in. You can't get out, whether you're 102 or not. Whether you get mad at God because he does things in your life that you go, I wish you would never do that. You can't stop. It's like being born in a family. You can hate your family, you can turn on your parents or your siblings, but you can never undo your DNA. And that's the same thing true spiritually. The question is, did you really be, were you really born again? Were you really regenerated? Did you really trust Christ for your salvation? That's the problem today. It is so deceiving. Satan wants people to think all kinds of reasons of how they get in. But he says, you were sealed. You're distinguished with this guarantee of safety. It's a pleasure, it's a promise. He goes on explaining that a little bit. He says, in him, again, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, this undertaking for God to do something. And then he says, who is given as a pledge. This word is specifically used as, in, at the time there, as earnest money. We would call it a down payment or a deposit. Today, modern Greek uses the same word pledge describing an engagement ring. It's not what it meant in the first century, but it does today. So when I give you a ring to whom I'm going to marry i got to be careful I'm not looking at the guys here right now. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have brought that up. But, but um, I am going to give you a ring to testify that I'm making a pledge. I'm making a commitment to you. This isn't a light thing. This didn't come out of a bum, uh, gumball machine. And I've got ten more, just in case things don't work out. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He's a pledge. He's a down payment of our inheritance of this promise that was brought up in verse 11, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, again, I just went through that really quick. If you haven't been aware of what Calvinism is, you were lost. If you um, had other reasons for sleeping today, you were lost. Not spiritually speaking, I hope. But if you look at this passage, you understand it's just one of Dozens and dozens that you can go back to and realize when he talks about adoption, when he talks about the elect or being chosen, when he talks about predestination, he's not talking about salvation. And you need to go back and look at it and figure out, well, then what is he talking about? And you'll see from Scripture how it's laid out. Have I made any sense today? I'm going to get off it and move to a summer of love. But you watch out. 
This is widespread. And if you have a study Bible here today, I would guess the majority of them are teaching you Calvinism. And you didn't even realize it. As a teacher, as a shepherd, I'm responsible to watch out for the sheep. I won't get cards and letters, but I will get in trouble for what I just taught you today. You may be looking at it and going, eh, doesn't bother me. Or you may look at it and go, doesn't even mean anything to me. I don't really care. If Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 doesn't mean anything to you, you may not know Christ. You may not appreciate what he's done. What it cost him and the genuine love that was shown that he would die on the cross for our sins and rise again over death, victorious, seated at the right hand to provide our justification according to Romans 4.25. We're rapidly moving toward the end. Christ is going to come back. We're seeing more and more indications of that. If you should be getting excited, motivated to share the gospel, and equipped to handle persecution in a loving way. But if you don't know Christ today, it's real simple. It's a free gift offered to everyone to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we had a lot to cover today. I pray that... Uh, each one here would take seriously some of the handouts, not for how I organize them, but for what scriptures are in there, that they would take time to meditate on your word and to process what it's trying to say, that they would take you seriously and be thankful for your generosity through your son, Jesus Christ. You forgave us in him. Pray that each one in this room knows you, takes you seriously, and that we go out those doors with a desire to make a difference and the lives of others who are floundering in their sin. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.